guys and welcome back to the take a trip podcast today i'm going to be talking about a very serious topic um it's one that hits close to home because it is close to home and i remember when this actually happened and just how devastated everybody was about the whole thing it's really heartbreaking um if you don't like themes of death and i'm not really gonna go into you know graphic description about how these people died or necessarily personal experiences in the fire because it is really graphic and traumatic but I will be talking about you know there is a theme of suicide later on I will be talking about entire families that unfortunately died in this fire as well so just be sure that you know if this isn't something that you would like to listen to then I will see you again this week for another episode because I did miss last week's episode um the next episode is going to be a little bit more light still you know a bit scary but not necessarily as heavy as today's topic so check back again in a few days for another episode if you're not comfortable with this one but if you're comfortable with listening then let's get straight into Grenfell Tower and why this was one of the biggest incidents in the UK on Wednesday the 14th of June 2017 the UK woke up to heartbreaking news. A catastrophic incident occurred in the Grenfell Tower. And by the time the news had circulated, the building had been completely engulfed in flames. Entire families and people's loved ones had gone missing in an enormous fire, which broke out from a flat on the fourth floor of the building. The death toll began to gradually creep up more and more, and families had nowhere to turn. People from all over the country came together to provide help and shelter to those who had lost their homes and their families. But what started this fire and how did it get so bad to the point where it claimed 72 lives? This is a case where hundreds of people were completely failed by the system. They were failed by the fire brigade, they were failed by the council, by the government by local authorities, basically by everyone whose job it was to have their life be a priority to them. So I'm going to start by giving you a little bit of context on Grenfell Tower itself and sort of where it is and, you know, what it is. So Grenfell Tower is a part of a council housing complex in North Kensington it had 24 floors it was 200 feet tall and it had an average of 10 bedrooms per floor now the number of rooms or bedrooms in each flat would vary um depending on how big the flat was but there was a total of 129 apartments in the whole of grenfell and there were around 600 people living there in these flats so grenfell like i said is in north kensington and it is a part of the Lancaster West Estate. This housing was council housing, but there was a few rent-to-buy flats as well inside Grenfell, so it wasn't exclusively council-owned. However, the people in Grenfell were sort of technically living through the council because they managed that property. North Kensington is well known for its bustling streets and thriving community and everyone seems to know everyone over there. It is such a good place for diversity and just vibrance and good vibes obviously. There's very good vibes 
from around them sides, especially during carnival times. I listened to the Grenfell Inquiry podcast by the BBC and it's really good for giving me a quick breakdown on each day of the inquiry, the public inquiry about Grenfell because there were a lot of questions to be asked about this case and it really did break down a lot of the jargon that these legal people use and it's good for if you're like me and you need stuff broken down into just little words. Um, So yeah, have a look at that podcast if you want to look deeper into this uh, Grenfell situation and if you want a sort of closer connection with the case because it definitely shares some very intimate vulnerable moments between grieving families and you know other people who were at the inquiry but as we know when the area got gentrified the investors realized that they wanted their properties to be more aesthetically pleasing so in result of that Grenfell's management announced that the tower was going to have a major reconstruction They added new windows, new water-based heating system, and the main thing we will be talking about today in terms of the catalyst of the fire was the cladding. But before I dive deeper into that though, I'm going to explain to you what actually went down on that night of the fire. On a warm summer evening of the 14th of June 2017, the London Fire Brigade received a call from a man at 12.54am. The caller was identified to be Behalu Kabidi. He explained to the operator that a fire had broken out in his kitchen and he gave his address which was flat 16, 4th floor of Grenfell Tower, North Kensington. He quickly left his room and knocked on his neighbours doors to alert them about the fire And then he quickly ran downstairs and out of the tower as the firefighters began to reach the scene. By 1.14am, the firefighters had reached the kitchen of the flat where the fire began and they came to the startling realisation that the fire is spreading at a much faster rate than what they had originally anticipated. So remember the cladding that I just mentioned a few minutes ago? Well... Let's quickly look into what exactly that is and why it's an insanely bad idea for any property investor or developer or manager to invest in such a cheap material for such a big project. Well, you see how you might put a case on your phone, for example. You want it to look more pretty, you want it to look new, you want it to, you know, just look the part, right? Well, that's what a lot of companies use cladding for. But in Grenfell's case, it was also used to improve heating and energy efficiency. Um, But it was mainly for the visual appearance because, you know, if you look at old pictures of Grenfell, it was just this tall concrete structure and they wanted to change it into this sleek metallic looking structure. So to get that look, they decided to use the aluminium cladding with a polyethylene core. And this is where we get all technical. If a fire was to start, and the cladding bursts into flames. Not only is the cladding extremely flammable, but the core between the two aluminium sheets is also extremely flammable. It is literally plastic. So if a fire were to start, the small air pocket behind the cladding adds as a fuel and it supplies oxygen to the fire and allows it to climb the building at a very fast speed. While the metal is non-combustible, 
The core between the two aluminium sheets can make this product extremely dangerous, says e-architect. The fire expert said that the thermoplastic polymer materials used to make it are highly combustible and more flammable than petrol, which is very worrying. Some witnesses likened it to lighting a paper on fire, except it just seemed to burn forever. The Harley Facade commercial manager, Mark Harris, admitted from a selfish point of view that his company's preference was to use cheaper aluminium composite material. And I'm going to speak about how the people were responsible for how bad Grenfell got. Um, I'm going to speak more about that when I talk about the inquiry. The London Fire Brigade quickly realised that the fire was severe and hundreds of witnesses saw the flames grow absolutely uncontrollable. The flames were beginning to burst out of the building, the exterior was catching fire and inside the smoke was spreading even faster. By 1.18am, only 34 out of 293 people had escaped the building. The smoke was just now beginning to creep into flat 26 and other residences surrounding. One survivor recalled being evacuated from the building with the firemen and a passed-by people banging on their windows and doors as the flames trapped them inside. That must have been so traumatic to see, I can't imagine. Within the next 20 minutes, around 110 people had escaped, and by now the London Fire Brigade had begun to try extinguishing the fire. By 2am, a major incident was then reported. The amount of pumps that the fire brigade were using to extinguish the fire increased from 25 to 40. That's how rapid the fire was going at this point. And there was now a supposed 68 people who had also escaped at this point. At 2.20, the smoke from the fire was then declared a threat to people who were still inside the tower. So at this point, the stay put policy, which I'm going to talk about in a second as well, was abandoned and the residents were told to run for their lives. At this point, people were seen jumping from windows. One family shared a story in a documentary where they tried every piece of fabric. So they literally tied up every single piece of fabric in their house. This is pillowcases, blankets, hoodies, sweatshirts, coats, everything. They tied it all up and they created a rope, which they tried to lower themselves and their young daughter, who was like around one or two years old, I believe. They had to use that to lower themselves down to the lower floors because they were not able to get assistance from the fire brigade at that time. By 6am, the fire had affected all sides of the building. The last few survivors were rescued and the police began to encourage people in the area to contact any missing people that they knew, who might still be inside the building. The local community got really involved at this point. They bought blankets, they bought towels, they bought food, they bought water, they bought so many supplies for the survivors and people began receiving treatment for their smoke inhalation as well. One thing that was really interesting that I heard of was that witnesses and survivors were all saying that the cladding was creating this really weird sort of sticky ash and it looked a lot like snow was falling from the sky but really and truly it was just all of this cladding, this burnt plastic that was just flying around in the wind and people were breathing it in and it was really starting to attack their throat and obviously caused them breathing problems. However, by midday, the nation was hit with another wave of heartbreaking news. There had been another 12 deaths as a result of this fire and many people remained in critical condition 
which meant that that number was due to climb. Back near Grenfell, local businesses, charities and neighbours were all coming together to help the survivors. The British Red Cross mentioned on their website that they alone had deployed over 630 volunteers. So they also supported another 1,700 people who had been affected by the incident as well. But let's not forget, before these big companies and these big charities and names were all able to reach Grenfell, let's just remember that the local community definitely did their thing to help as well. You know, people were running straight out of their houses onto the street to give people blankets and water and just things that they genuinely needed to be um, comfortable and safe uh, in such a traumatic situation. This is where the case gets very intense though because when the local community came to start helping and you know people were trying to lend a helping hand they noticed that there was no council officials there yet and bear in mind this is a council estate this is this fire also affected nearby buildings as well so you would have thought that maybe someone from the council would go and try and see what's going on right no and this is where like i said it just gets all intense the people of Grenfell were failed by the council who, like I said earlier, their job is literally just to protect these people and make sure they live comfortably and safely. They couldn't even do that even if they're paid to care. So back in Kensington, the tension was growing because, like I said, the council was continuing to gloss over the gravity of the Grenfell situation. Local churches, halls and people's own homes were turned into relief centres for people who had lost everything in the fire and protests even began to break out on that Friday evening at Kensington High Street where people stormed the council offices because they were angry at the blatant neglect that they were witnessing from the council. The council later released a statement but to be honest, let's be real, in a situation like this, who wants words? Like people want action at that point, you know? And as the protests were going on, the death toll was rising and more and more people were becoming homeless. Missing persons posters were posted all over every wall and every lamppost and at one local chapel, a book of condolences was there to be signed by people who wished to pay their respects to those who had passed away. This was guided by tape on the floor which read no press. Questions were also starting to pop up though. People wanted to know how a building so big could catch on fire so fast. And why have people's relatives been told by emergency services to stay inside of their burning flat? Why didn't the council seem to care? And why were they allegedly trying to brush off such a horrifying incident? Why weren't these fire alarms and fire systems blazing? And why weren't fire doors properly closing and fire exits blocked off? The closer people looked at the context of this fire, the more it became obvious that Grenfell was sadly an example of how people from disadvantaged backgrounds had been treated in the UK. As I mentioned previously, the new cladding had been fixed onto Grenfell's exterior and it seemed to fuel this fire. Well, how outraged would you be if you knew that the company responsible for the sale of highly flammable cladding were aware of how dangerous that cladding was? Well, let's chat about this because I feel like not enough people talk about this situation. The family of those who died in the fire attended and shared speeches and memories about their loved ones. There's a podcast called The Grenfell Tower Inquiry and it was made by BBC Radio and it gave really good coverage on the case. It 
gave you sort of bite-sized chunks of information from each meeting between grieving families, witnesses and authorities. And it gave very good coverage on the case because it gives you a very close look into how it impacted each family and why it was so emotional. Well, first of all, the company who sold the cladin was Arconic. So I found a Guardian article and it explained that Arconic had been made aware back in 2007 that their product was unsafe. Gerard Sontag, I'm sorry if I butchered that, the Arconic executive, he had attended a seminar and reported back to the company that he was so concerned by the experts' warning about the materials used in the cladin the Arconic should consider only selling the panels with the fire retardant core, but that didn't actually happen. The firm went to sell on its PE product or polyethylene product for use on Grenfell and it became the main cause of the fire spread, engulfing the 24-storey block in less than 30 minutes and fueling the worst loss of life in a single incident in London for more than 60 years. During the public inquiry, they decided to show some very worrying emails where the people at Arconic had got caught red-handed. Claude Well was the whistleblower and he supplied a lot of emails to the inquiry, but he also pissed a few people off because he refused to come to the UK and give more details about how corrupt the Arconic really are and the extent of their role in the death of 72 people. He said he didn't want to speak badly of Arconic and that he couldn't talk due to Arconic's lawyers being a threat. But Arconic came out and said that that wasn't true. They completely denied that statement. And long story short, someone's lying. It's just crazy to me how Claude decided to defend a multi-million pound company over, you know, less advantaged victims' families who wanted closure on their loved one's death. Kareem was a man who lost his uncle Hesham Rahman in the fire and he delivered a letter of protest to the French embassy that week. He said, we need these people to come to the country and tell the truth. It's in the interest of public safety. He said thousands of people are living in homes with material that caused the spread of the fire and caused the death of their families. They must come here with the interest of public safety. They must come and tell the truth so that we can make sure that this never happens again. Well, our little friend Claude, he knew how bad the cladding was for years. Emails had even shown management's conversations between clients in Spain who wanted the cladding, but were mentioning and questioning its safety in these emails. And Spain has very tight regulations, so the cladding actually wasn't able to be sold to them for that reason. A lot of countries have banned the use of polyethylene cladding but the UK didn't, and arguably they still haven't. The UK was described in one article as a PE marketplace. The inquiry heard about how Arconic were fully aware that their cladding went on fire, its polyethylene core would completely melt and ignite. Well, after the public inquiry, there was a snap ban on combustible cladding material in 2018, but this only protected buildings over 18 metres tall. Now the ban has been changed to affect buildings over 11 metres tall. But my question is, why didn't you just ban it altogether? You know, you know, it's something that is so flammable and can kill so many people and has killed so many people. Why don't you respect that and just ban it altogether? A place nearby my university. Now, this is weird because when I went to university, I saw an article that there was a place nearby that they didn't want to mention that had illegal cladding. And this cladim 
was ripped off of this building. I watched it as it was ripped off of the building and they replaced it. And it didn't take that long. It took a couple of months, but it didn't really take that long. And I just thought that's all it takes is just a little bit of extra time and effort and for people to not be so cheap and negligent so that people can actually have a safe life and they don't have to worry about, you know, things like this, things like Grenfell happening. But the cladding wasn't the only thing to blame for the Grenfell incident though. There were stories surfacing from victims' families who shared that their loved ones were told to stay put in their flat as the building continued to burn. The stay put policy has been used for a number of years, it's nothing new, and it's generally used with large buildings like Grenfell um, for when they are on fire. So for example, I worked in a care home which relied on this same process. And these processes are very, very, very dependent on the building's fire safety being in tip-top form and regular checks being done on things like the fire alarm systems and the doors properly closing. Well, let's look back at Grenfell because there were reports that the fire doors weren't properly closing at all. And I don't like the fact that people's lives are completely dependent on a door burning for more than 30 minutes because that's what fire doors do. You know, there's different types, but Generally, a fire door will burn for around 30 minutes, you know, and, and that's the amount of time you have until someone comes and helps you. But in a situation like Grenfell, let's do the maths, right? So the Grenfell blaze started at 12.50 at night. If you tell 600 people in all of their flats, all of their over 100 flats, by the way, to stay indoors and the only thing keeping them alive is a door, probably in a corridor, that is meant to withstand fire for 30 minutes, is that really sensible? Is that really gonna work? Because the entire tower was in flames within 30 minutes. 30 minutes, guys. And they have this policy where people have to stay in their flat on, you know, the idea that the flat is going to burn down at a much slower pace, but they had used this horrible cladding that accelerated all of this flames and this fire and it got to a point where people were now essentially just burning alive and they had no chance because they're being told to stay put in these flats. Grenfell had 24 floors, one stairwell, two fire exits and no sprinklers and they also had barely audible fire alarms. Now Actual survivors said that the fire alarms could not even be heard. And I figured this one out because whenever you look at Grenfell footage, in a lot of the footage, you cannot hear any fire alarms or any fire systems at all. And I just find that absolutely horrifying. I can't believe how they could receive so many alarming calls at the fire station and not decide to abandon that policy any sooner. And the fire safety at Grenfell, like I said, was absolutely awful. The people there were failed by so many others who were meant to care about them and it's just so disgusting and it makes you wonder what they were even paying money for when they lived there because it clearly didn't go on the property. The people in charge of Grenfell chose a very cheap and lazy option every time and it cost them 72 innocent lives. And this is where people think the corporate manslaughter charges should have come in and I stand by that 100%. But meanwhile, back in Kensington, people were grieving their lost family members and generally trying to move on with their lives. They needed to arrange funerals, buy new belongings, deal with the loss of their homes, 
their pets, their friends, their neighbours and even other family members. However, there were so many families displaced from their homes that there was an, another uproar over the amount of people who had to live out of hotels and temporary accommodation. The government really dragged their heels when it came to rehousing people and there's no doubt about that. It took years for most people to get another place to call home. I even heard one woman, apparently she was a single mother, and she had a flat in London all of her life, and she was told to move with her two children outside of London. And I'm talking like two, three hours outside of London. And they said, here's your flat. And I can't believe that. I mean, if you're going to be so negligent to the point where your mistakes have cost 72 lives and then for the remaining people you're going to say yeah go and live three hours away from everything that you've ever known that is just so disrespectful and I like I keep saying it's just so disgusting that people are treated like this in the Grenfell Inquiry podcast one woman spoke out about the psychological aspect of the aftermath and she explained that you cannot properly process an incident or become mentally stable you know especially if you're suffering from something like PTSD without having a place to call home. A lot of the families were living in local hotels, like I said, and other places that were open to them, and they could still see this burnt tower whenever they walked outside, and it's just such a traumatic and mentally exhausting situation for these victims. And this wasn't unnoticed, because there was actually 20 suicide attempts reported after the fire. It was so hard on so many people, even including the witnesses, and volunteers and people whose family just lived at the place and people who might not have even seen it and might have just seen it on the news. It was just such a hard thing to deal with. The inquiry asked a lot of questions and while some of them were answered, for the most part, people are still scratching their heads to this day. I feel like there's still a lot of neglect on the council's half and also on the government's part as well because there's no way that amount of people can die and no one has been held accountable for it. The only people who kept this whole situation under control was the local community and they were so strong and so quick with their help and it's just really heartwarming to see other people come through and help the victims the way they did. I went to Notting Hill Carnival not long after Grenfell and to be honest it was just lovely. There were murals spray painted on the walls to remember the victims and people wore green to show their love and support for the Grenfell victims. There was even a marching band and in true Caribbean style, we celebrated the lives which were lost that night. And down the road, Grenfell Tower was stood watching and it still stands there to this day. I know there's a few debates on whether it should be knocked down or not, but to be brutally honest, I think that's just down to the families and the local community to decide because it directly affects them. It doesn't directly affect someone like me who lives, you know, a while away from that area, you know? And as for Arconic, the company who sold that horrible cladding, I was researching and I found an article from this June, so it's from June 24th, 2021, and here's the headline. Pro-Palestine activists occupied a factory in Birmingham on Monday, which produces materials used to make fighter jets for the Israeli army and the highly flammable material which led to the Grenfell fire. Palestine Action began its occupation of the Arconic factory in England's West Midlands region in the early hours of Monday morning. 
The factory supplies various materials, including sheet metal, to manufacture Boeing and Lockheed Martin military aircraft used by Israeli military in its latest assault on Gaza. I just think it's absolutely unreal how companies like this can even exist. Um, you know, you've, you'd think they would be completely screwed after the whole Grenfell situation, but to think that they are going back and they're now making fighter jets for the Israeli army, like how bad can you get as a company? What's going on? And somehow they just remain involved in all this dark stuff. And honestly, I just, I just can't believe that they still exist. These people distributed material for housing, which they knew would cause a huge fire and they didn't give a single fuck and they still continue to not give a single fuck and they just need to be dissolved. The Inquiry podcast has a lot more information on this case. Obviously, I couldn't fit it all into today's case, but um, before I finish this episode, I want to read the names of all of the victims of the Grenfell incident because I just want to finish this episode on a bit of a moment of silence for these people who lost their lives due to the blatant disrespect of the government. So here are their names. Fatia Ahmed El-Sanosi, Isra Ibrahim, Fethia Hassan, Hania Hassan, Mohammed Amid Nader, Raymond Moses Bernard, Rania Ibrahim, Hesham Rahman, Gloria Tevisan, Marco Gotardi, Anthony Disson, Mariam Elgwari, Jakob Hashim, Hashim Kedir, Nura Jamal, Elsa Elgwari, Syria Kocher, Yaya Hashim, Nadia Kocher, Basim Choker, Fatima Choker, Miana Choker, Zainab Choker, Fyodor Hashim, Mehdi El Wahhabi, Yasin El Wahhabi, Logan Gomez, Fozia El Wahhabi, Abdelaziz El Wahhabi, Ligayamo, Noor Huda El Wahhabi, Lena Belkadi, Jessica Urbano Ramirez, Farah Hamdan, Omar Belkadi, Alexandra Atla, Mary Mendy, Malak Belkadi, Victoria King, Khadija Sayi, Amal Ahmedin, Maria Pili Del Pilar Burton, Amaya Tuku Al Mahadin, Amaya Tuku Ahmedin, Sakina Afrasebi, Vincent Chigina, Isaac Paulos, Hamid Kani, Bertki Haftom, Biruk Haftom, Kamru Mia, Mohammed Hamid, 
Rabea Begum, Husna Begum, Mohammed Hanif, Kahija Kalufi, Deborah Lampro, Marjorie Vital, Ernie Vital, Sheila Joseph Daniels, Stephen Power, Dennis Murphy, Zainab Dean, Mohammed Al Haj Ali, Jeremiah Dean, Absalam Sabah, Ali Yawa Jafari, Gary Maunders, Abu Far Ibrahim, Mohammed Na Mo Tuku, Fatma Afrasebi, Amna Mahmud Idris. So I think it's really important to hear all of their names read out in a list like that because you're able to sort of picture how many people that really is. Um, 72, you know, it's a big number, but sometimes it's kind of hard to look at it and really take in how many people that really is. And honestly, my heart goes out to their families, um, their friends, anyone who knew them. I'm just so sorry that they were just so failed by people who are meant to protect and make their lives easy and safe. They failed on that. And honestly, I can't apologize enough for those families. And I can't imagine the pain that they must be going through. But that's all I've got for you on Grenfell today, guys. Like I said, there's definitely a lot more depth that I could go into regarding victim stories. But like I said, it's just a bit dark as for right now. I may revisit it and um, retell a few of the victim stories. But I'm not 100% just yet. I'll probably rather do that um, with someone who may be able to talk to me about someone who they knew um who had something to do with the fire maybe a, a volunteer or someone so if you know anyone or if you are someone who helped with the fire please contact me so we can have a little chat more about um everything that went down but that's all i've got for you today guys i hope you found this episode very insightful and i hope you learned a bit from this as well and i know you're probably looking at me like Leah, the YouTube channel, what's going on? Okay, let me quickly explain to you guys. Anyone who actually cares, listen up, okay? I have tried to record on like five separate occasions now, and I'm having, if you could just hear that, that was my camera. I'm having a lot of problems with my camera recording. There's a lot of errors. It's not allowing me to record past 10 minutes, even though it has, you know, over 100 gigabytes of memory on the card. I don't know. I've tried to do it so many different ways. I've tried green screens. I've tried using streaming software. I've tried using video capture cards. Honey, I've tried everything and nothing is working out for me. So I'm going to return to the whole YouTube thing when I actually figure out what I'm doing. But until then, I'm just gonna carry on posting on Spotify because I don't wanna miss any more episodes. Um, Got some new developments on the way for the podcast I'm excited to speak about soon. But until then, um, you guys can expect a much more laid back approach to the podcast, like how I have had it today. Um, I want to get to know you guys a little more. I want you to feel a little bit more personal with me. So 
it's going to be a lot more laid back episodes like this so yeah that's all I have for you today thank you so much for listening if you've listened this far I've put some resources down below um for fire safety because I know it's very very important make sure you've always got your own fire alarms doesn't matter if you've got one already fitted in your flat make sure you keep another one um that's what that's what we do over here um always have your carbon monoxide uh detectors as well because they're kind of helpful and be careful and watch your electrics and make sure nothing gets too hot especially in this weather stay safe guys and if you have any questions or alerts regarding your home and where you live and if you think it's unsafe please contact the appropriate authorities um do not be quiet about these things if you live in accommodation and you're worried about you know the fire safety um if there's not the right fire alarms or if they've had no fire testing stuff always raise alarms please always raise alarms take to social media that's usually your biggest and best route to take in stuff like this thank you very much for listening to this episode and thank you for listening to me ramble for the last 10 minutes i hope you have a wonderful day please stay safe and i'll be coming at you with the visuals very soon when i actually get my life figured out i love you guys thank you so much for the support and thank you so much for being patient with me i'll see you again this week for another episode actually i'm releasing a second episode about something a little spooky i'll see you soon guys bye